Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or in the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Brotherless Night. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And we're at year's end. It's the end of 2023, and it is yet another year to which I would say, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Hold on a second. Come on. I mean, there's got to be something salvageable that we could find about this year. It's like nothing can make you a pessimist. It's impressive. No, things can, but I mean, also... Well, what about books that were published this year? I mean, you published this novel, this great novel, Brotherless Night, which got fantastic reviews and was on the cover of the New York Times uh, book review. I mean, I think that seems like a good thing. Are you trying to, are we going to just elide that? Uh Uh-oh. Oh, no. You're having an episode of BBLA. I, I could be, but I, I don't, I don't know what that is. That's because I just made it up for the purposes of this episode. But let's say that BBLA is an acronym for Best Book List Anxiety. It's a seasonal disorder, manifests only in December. It affects writers who published a novel during a given year, and its symptoms are compulsive checking and rechecking of Google notifications, frequent emails to publicists, and in very bad cases, a complete renunciation of the internet. What stage are you in? The, the internet? What internet? Um, I haven't heard of this thing. What internet? I don't know. Other people who, what is this beautiful place? Anyway, um, fortunately I am not alone in publishing a book this year and experiencing symptoms of wits concocted disorder. We are joined today by the novelist and critic Lydia Kiesling. Lydia Kiesling is the author of the golden state at 2018 national book foundation, 535 honoree and a finalist for the VCU Cabell first novel award. Her essays in nonfiction have been published in outlets including The New York Times Magazine, The New Yorker Online, and The Cut. And her spectacular second novel, Mobility, was published by Crooked Media Reads in August of this year. Lydia, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for, uh, thanks for being here. Um, we were talking uh, earlier in the, in the opening here about a thing that I, 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 uh, it's not in the DSM-5, but... Best book list anxiety, or BBLA, as I call it. Have you ever been affected by this, or are you currently? It's funny, because I, I, this will make it sound like a little, like I'm too good to be true, but I actually forgot this year that that happens. Um, I know I was very affected by it when my first book came out, Um and then when mobility came out, I was very affected by the like pre like anticipated lists. Um, you know, will will people be waiting for this book? Are people anticipating it? That I was stressed about. And then you know the book came out. I had the publication cycle. I did like book tour stuff. And then I now I'm sort of in the like crushing depression <laughs> part of 
like doing a big thing and just being finished with it and then sort of not knowing what to do um, or, you know, knowing you have to do things like earn money. But, you know, just <laughs> I don't know. I just am in sort of like a hole. Uh, and then one day I woke up and had an email from my publicist saying like, congrats, it's Vulture said you were a must read uh, book of 2023. And so that was like a nice way to be reminded of the fact that the year end lists exist. Um, but yeah, then I was sort of like, oh yeah, that's happening. But because I got that sort of like nice surprise reminder, I have not been as afflicted by it this time. Um, and I have been, but, but I know it sucks. Like list culture is horrendous. And um, for everyone out there suffering, I really, I understand. It's terrible. <laughs> so I feel like we ought to do a taxonomy of best book of the year list for our listeners who are not themselves foolish enough to be writers. Um, like what lists exist? Which list do you read? Uh, let's just like start imagine there without if there was saying... Like a- Best veterinarian of the year every year that you had to re-rate everyone. There is. You know? There is. Well, okay. And all the vets are like, God damn it, Greg is the always makes the list. Or... It's not in the times, anyway. Um, so, yeah, of course, we have no preconceptions about which list is more important than other lists. Um, although, of course, writers are doing all this all the time in their head. So what? which are the lists that spring to mind for you? So... I mean, I think part of the reason that I was a little bit sanguine this year or just like in a depressive hole where I didn't care about anything is that uh, I already knew. I think my in my mind, the big list is the New York Times 100 notable books, which they then make into 10. And I knew I wasn't going to be on that because the New York Times book review did not review my book, which, you know, that happens. Many books every year are not reviewed by the New York Times book review. I will confess in this um safe space that I was a little upset about it because I review books for them. So I was like, why can't it's totally you upsetting. My, my second book got reviewed <laughs> in a, everywhere except in the New York Times. And it was incredibly frustrating. Yeah. You're just like, why? I mean, it got a teeny mention. It was a sentence that said also out this week and just like a sentence of what the book is with no adjectives of any kind. Which again, you know, some like there is a world in which that is preferable to getting some like horrible pan. Um, you know, I would not want that to happen. But I was like, I just review. You assigned me a book to review like six months ago. Why can't you? Anyway, so I was like, I'm not going to be on that list. I already know that. I, to my knowledge, they would never have a book on that list that they haven't paid attention to in some uh, in one of their properties. I would think. Um, and then also all the outlets are doing new li- like some lists are just like proliferating like mushrooms every year. So, you know, now there's like, I think a kind of established one is NPR has its like book concierge or kind of their end of thing, which is a huge clump of books. It's like 300 or something. Um, that one's been going on for a few years. Uh, but a lot of outlets are just kind of adding them every year. So I think that's helpful to just remember that there is no set in stone, like, it might feel like, oh my God, they've been doing this list for so long, but list culture is actually pretty new, I think, um, or at least this sort of proliferation of it. So just, you know, if anyone read your book at all, that's, you just have to be like, that's that's the list I want. I want to be on the list of books that someone read this year. That's a good reminder. Yeah, I do feel what like- What list do you the, read, Sugi? What list do I read? <laughs> um, I tend to be someone who for comfort will just like look at grossly consumerist things none of which involve books. 
because I think I'm now talking of course, about like, book lists though. I'm not I know. asking like the best <laughs> socket wrench list that you read in Consumer Reports. She's reading the vet list. Okay, I, um, she wants to know about vets. I say this. I say this. Of course, completely without without bias, but I really enjoy. Um, maybe it was under you that the million started year in reading, and I always mm-hmm. appreciate when the lists have like the NPR list actually, um, which is like I think it's almost four hundred books. Like it's often like a specific person recommending it. So rather than this notion that bestness can be titrated in some way, um, I appreciate it when it comes from a specific person and when it's sort of acknowledged as a personal and subjective thing. So the NPR list does that the year, the year in reading on the millions does that. And and other people have sort of started to imitate. I think that the first time I saw that was maybe in the millions. And and now it seems to me like a lot of publications have versions of that um, where it's like their staff critics or people whose books they admired or whatever are doing years in reading for them. And then those are also not restricted sometimes to the books that were published that calendar year. So it's kind of like a more generous instinct that I appreciate. Um, yeah, that is I, I, I'm so glad you mentioned the million. So that was not under me. That actually predates me. Um, and Max McGee, who started the millions, I think he actually I am I am I fully believe that he invented both the like kind of list culture and the year and reading concept. And it's pretty amazing to have seen it proliferate the way that it has. And I remember uh, a few years ago. The New York Times Book Review did, a, they had something called a year in reading, and it was like the same concept. And Max, actually, he was like, how dare you? And he wrote, <laughs> and it was Pamela, it was Pamela Paul at the time. And he was like, listen, you know, we've, we all know that the Millions has been doing this for, because the Millions has done year in reading for like 17 years or something, like a really long time. And he was like, I understand you want to do like a roundup. That's fine. But like, it's literally called the same thing. This is, you know, we've, we've, we've had this and, um, my recollection is that uh, his email was not received <laughs> particularly well. Maybe that's why they didn't review kind of, your book. No, well, I didn't. I didn't send the email. I was just privy. I'm like airing. I'm airing everyone's business right now. But um, but it was just kind of like, well, you don't like own this concept. You know, every everyone can read a book and talk about what they enjoy. But then since then, and you know, th- since then, so many outlets have done it that it's just kind of like, you know, what are you gonna do? Um, but he also, yeah, he started the, the his like anticipate most anticipated list, which I honestly think that is a little bit of like a force for evil in the world. So <laughs> Max, like you, you, you need to own. That's like the flip side of the, of the year end <laughs> list is the most anticipated list that you get nervous about yes. at the beginning of the year. Yes. And, and it sucks. And it's like, and I, I mean, it is, it is really useful for people like critics or, you know, or, or people who just like want to know what's coming, but it does turn into this like. He, I mean, he always had a very ruthless sensibility about it. And he would get really mad at me when I when I became the editor because I just like it hurt my heart to like think about people feeling excluded from a list. And also it's just like, who am I to know? Like I just put in as many books as I hear about. And he would be like, this is like 170 books long. Like there's no point in doing this if there's not sort of like some curatorial sense. But then I'd be like, well, I, I, I can't make those choices. So I think now the um, new editor, Sophia, who is wonderful, I, I don't have like visibility onto the process anymore. But um, I think she's bringing, you know, like trying to maybe pare it down a little bit because it did. It got just out of hand. And like LitHub's list, I think, was like 200 books, like the most last most anticipated list. OK, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. 
This seems like, I, um, Michael, an opportunity to give my bosses at LitHub <laughs> some shit. I was not on your most anticipated <laughs> list, guys. Question mark. <sighs> what? Speaking of uh, speaking oh, of other things, God. like you should have been on the Times uh, note, uh, noteworthy books list. Also, Sugi, I'm just going to say that here. Both of you, by yes. the way, um, the novels deserve to be on there. So um, I was Thank pissed you. about Thanks, that but... in your on your behalf. Um, and I wonder sometimes about how these lists get chosen because I've been on it. I've been on the Times note, notable books list once for my first novel. So I'm one for three, which yes. maybe that's not bad. Amazing. Um, <laughs> and uh, but I know how it happened, too, which was that my first novel, The Huntsman, was reviewed as a crime novel, which made me literally cry, which I didn't because I didn't think of it as a crime novel. <laughs> oh, and like no. Marilyn Stasio <laughs> reviewed it and gave it a great review. And then put it on the notable books list, which was huge deal. I didn't even know that that that, that was a big deal. Like I, I was so green at the time, right? And they were like, this is really important. I'm like, really? They're like, this is, yeah, Marilyn did this for you. It's wonderful. I'm like, okay, fine. This and it did turn out to be a big deal. And then they put a sticker on the paperback. A sticker, and they do all this yes. stuff, you know? And it's forever in the bio of your book. I mean, so these, these lists do have weight. And yet it was just one person saying, oh, well, I decided that this book should be on there this year. And I think that happens that way a lot. Yeah, I mean, I when I was in charge of the when I edited the millions and then like did sort of when I was no longer the full time editor, I still would help with the lists, and I I found it incredibly stressful and horrible um, because yeah, you sometimes you know you don't hear about a book like there actually aren't the way that I would do it is I would look at like any mention that a book, someone made of a book like online or anytime someone like emailed about a book. And then I'd go to this horrible website called Fiction Database, which is where they like say the books that are coming out. It's some like, it's I think pretty comprehensive. Um, and I don't know where they get the data, whether it's like ISBN numbers or something, but you can look for forthcoming books and you can look six months out. Um, and, and it's horrible because it's, literally every genre of book, every kind of book. And so you'd have to, they have some filter systems. So you could do like general fiction or literature, but there's a lot of like, it, it was very like not very good data. Um, and so I would just scroll through it and just be like, do I see any like names of, you know, sometimes I'd find out like, oh my God, some really famous author has a book coming out who it hasn't been announced yet. Like they their publicity thing hadn't sort of jumped into gear. So I would do that. And then, yeah, I would always feel terrible when I realized like, oh, oh my gosh, this person has a book out that I'm really looking forward to, but I didn't hear about it or I missed it or I like scrolled past it in fiction database. It's just such an inelegant way of doing things. And yeah, a lot of times it's just like someone knows someone who makes the list and is like, make sure that you note that my friend so-and-so has a book coming out or my client or whatever. And that's very um, exclusionary and many ways uh and yeah this lists they make people feel bad a lot of times but they also are useful so speaking of this usefulness and and sort of you know the question of elegance and like it's easy to shit on these lists um and frankly that's a little bit enjoyable especially <laughs> once not on them but also right like as you say they are they are useful so like what is a good process look like cuz i think basically what happens like when I start to imagine a process, basically I imagine another version of me who has no other job but to read and reads much faster than I do. And she reads like a thousand books and then very carefully curates like a, 
a selective and beautiful and like diverse and inclusive list of a hundred that is just like, you know, like I'd, I'd like to think that taste making is um, like, how can taste making of this kind be ethical? Like, is there a good way to do it? I honestly don't know because also, yeah, it's just like the sensibility. I liked what you said before about how it, it means more or it makes, I don't know, it just seems more like ethical and makes more sense when it's tied to a person's sensibility rather than like an, an entity or an institution. Um, because yeah, like there are lots of books that people really like and, you know, are cl- acclaimed that, you know, that we've all had the experience. You read a book that people love and then you're like, what? what is this? Like, I hate this shit. Or, you know, then some book becomes like a cult classic because it was completely slept on. And then, you know, someone finds it and like tweets it. And then, you know, some, it's like, you know, something, some magic happens. So, um, I mean, I think part of the thing about the list, which you really, you pointed to is that people have not read the books. That's the other thing that's so weird (laughs) and creepy is where it's like, You're reading like the publisher's description or someone's tweet being like, this seems like someone would want to read it. Or, you know, it's like it privileges people who've already published books because then it's the name recognition where it's like, oh, if you loved X, Y, and Z title, then you'll be excited to know that another book is coming out. But for debut writers, it's awful because you're just going on the publisher's copy. And that's where I think some of those like really the publishing shit shows that we've seen in, you know, recent history where, you know, there's like striving for sort of timeliness and like importance. And that can lead to some really weird, you know, just weird judgments all around about like what people imagine other people want to read and are looking for and just have, and it's like, yeah. And it sucks because nobody has read the fucking books. Wait, are you talking about the uh, anticipation (laughs) lists or are you talking also even about the year end lists? Oh no, I'm sorry. I am not I I've completely I've like You're hijacking derailed. our topic. It <laughs> I've is derailed December. Your topic. We're talking about the end of the year lists. Hopefully yes, people I think have there's more books. You know what? I bet I'm cuz I'm an asshole. I bet that there are some some books are on some list that have not been read, but I actually no. Know. I, I'm sure I've, that that is true, by the way. <laughs> I, I would say it's much more that. likely that they have been read. At least someone has read them if they're on the year-end lists. Yeah, I guess I'm just imagining, I don't know, like some newsroom where one person has read one book and not the other. And then like the the reverse is true of their like well-respected and beloved colleague. And then they're forced to have some sort of strange argument where, you know, which like kind of horse trading, like which of our books gets to be on the list? Well, I read this one and I read the other one. And so we can't actually compare. And so who's going to, I don't know, kind of who's going to win that argument? Yeah. Um, Gruesome. (laughs) Kind of. Someone should write a book about that. Oh, God. (laughs) So I think, you know, we have to ask, of course, like, how useful are these lists? Are they genuine markers of what books were best in a year? Or are they markers of how good the authors or editors or publicists contacts were at a particular institution? And maybe like most importantly, do they actually help to sell books? I think they are definitely an indication of the skill and luck of publicity teams and sort of the connectedness of teams. Um, I think that's one thing that is true. I think it is also true that, you know, it's books that made an impression on people who read them and sort of created buzz, um, which again is like often tied to the the first piece. Uh, and I do, but I do, I think they do help sell books. I mean, I don't know. I'm not like, uh, but I think people buy books at the holidays more. I mean, I know bookstores are often saying like, we do more 
you know, some huge percentage of their annual business happens like in the month of December. Uh, so people are definitely buying books. And so I think those lists do maybe help shape those purchases where you're just like, okay, let me quickly visit, you know, this outlet that I read their news. Normally I go to them for culture coverage. Let me see what they have on there. I mean, I also think booksellers do a lot because the way that they put their books out, the books they have sort of like in the center facing outward, their little um, shelf talkers or whatever they're called. I think those have a huge impact. So booksellers are very influential too at the end of the year when people are like making decisions about this. Okay, we're gonna take a short break here and we'll be right back. Speaking of pub publicity and the skill of publicists, we thought you'd be an interesting person to talk to because <laughs> your first novel, The Golden State, was published by MCD Books, which is an imprint of Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Mm -hmm. It's a traditional, you know, famous literary publisher. Um, Mobility was published by Crooked Media Reads in a partnership with Zando, which is a, both mm -hmm. relatively new outfits. And I think you were the first book published by Crooked Media Reads. Yes. Um, there's this group media is, the, is a company that puts out podcasts that are incredibly successful, but book publishing is new to them. So what was that like? How did their publicists do? Did they have the kind of contacts that like a place like Forrest Strauss and Giroux has? So the, the way that the Zando model works is that they, you know, Zando is started by Molly Stern, who comes from, you know, traditional yeah. big five publishing um, and all of the people that she hired sort of sort of editorial and publicity to my knowledge also come from there. So, you know, first, the reason that I went there is because Emily Bell, who was my editor for the Golden State, had gone there. And so she sort of like lured me. Um, so that's thing one. But Zando's model is they partner with influential people and institutions. So it is essentially like an imprint model, which they have, in, you know, Big Five Publishing. It's kind of like finding a person or an institution to kind of like put their name on and partner and have a list that matches their sensibility. Um, so I knew that Emily Bell was there and that I had had a great experience with her with the Golden State. Um, I also you know, had a great experience with FSG generally and, you know, had no like complaints there. Uh, but, you know, you feel attached to your editor in many cases. But I will say I felt apprehensive because I know, you know, she went to Zando a couple of years before I had mobility was ready to like take out. But she said, you know, I know you're working on something. I really, I really want to see it. You know, I want to publish this book. And which was nice to know that she was still interested in my work. But I was kind of like, but what? what is this? Like, what, where, where are you? And then when she did see the book, she was like, I want to publish this no matter what, but we are one of our new like imprint partners or is Crooked Media. And she made a very compelling case that they would just be able to get a lot more eyeballs on the book. Cause I think that's the ultimate issue with publishing is just figuring out what makes people buy books, what makes people hear about a book, what makes people interested in a book. And, you know, because Crooked does have this really strong built-in audience and because I was guaranteed that, you know, I would have total editorial freedom and it would be the same kind of process that I would have gone through at FSG editorially, um, I thought, okay. Um, I mean, I, because again, Emily was, you know, why I, why I came. Uh, and the way the publicity part works is that Zando has its, pub has its 
uh, publicists and book marketers and who are amazing. And they all came from, I mean, my main publicists had worked at FSG before. Um, so it, there's a lot of crossover from traditional publishing and a lot of the same methods, but, you know, with their own sort of twist. And there was a lot of energy there because it is a new venture. So I think there was a strong sort of like impetus to try and do really well for the books. And then they would work with Crooked's marketing people on some kind of like joint things and um, podcast things. So there were a lot of people who were kind of thinking about it, definitely more than I would have had at any, um, I think, like traditional publishing venue. And I would hear, you know, people, it's like, I, the, I don't like listen. I did was not like someone who really listened to Pod Save America um, religiously, but I, you know, I would hear from friends who were like, who aren't people I think of as like, being really up to date on like what's going on with literary fiction and they'd say oh my god i just heard like an ad for your book i'm so excited and so i was like okay well that is proof that people are hearing about it that you know who might not have otherwise because they don't like obsessively read like the most anticipated books of next month <laughs> lists or things like that so um i listen to body save america sometimes and i remember hearing them talking about your book when it was being released and and if i'm not mistaken you maybe did some events with the show's hosts and I don't have any stats here, but I bet more people listen to your average Pod Save America than say read the New York Times notable book list. So, is it possible that the gatekeepers for those kinds of lists are beginning to change? Like next year, will there be the Pod Save America top ten? I I do not know. That is a very interesting question. Um, I mean, I will say just based on like I'm one of those freaks who looks at um, BookScan on Amazon Author Central, which is <laughs> such a mistake to do that. And also, like, it's not very accurate. I don't know if you've covered this, but it's like BookScan doesn't reflect. If you look at a royalty statement versus BookScan, there's a huge discrepancy. But it's still it's still kind of inf interesting, like, data. And there's so little visibility that writers have onto, like, what's happening. And the money part is so confusing and intentionally opaque. So I like will look for any information I can. Um, and knowing that I, you know, I definitely the first week that mobility came out, like it sold many more copies than the first week that the Golden State came out. And, um, you know, I can't say that's all because it was on Pod Save America, but I think definitely it it just broadened the audience a lot. Um, I mean, and I, I would say it seems like the 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 this deciders or like there's new kind of gatekeepers who are coming because it's like publishers are really intent on breaking into book talk um which my understanding of book talk which is very small um is that it's actually really hard to like game it in any way and so you know book publicists and marketers are kind of trying to figure out like oh my god how do we make people like be obsessed with this on book talk but there is an organic element to it that i think is a little bit like difficult to capture so you know book talk is going to have its own like they have their own um sort of mechanism for like anticipation and best of curation and sometimes there will be an overlap with what you know the new york times list is going to say but i think also there will be a lot of different kinds of books on it as well so i do think that the different like platforms and the fact that people like listen to podcasts all the time and yeah like scrolling on tiktok that will change sort of what how people get their recommendations and figure out what to read for sure i would i mean i would you imagine. know like what's more important like time the time has a list and that's the only time of the year that i ever read time 
is if I happen to make that list or know someone who's on it or see someone post about it who got on, who's a friend of mine, um, or Goodreads, you know, or like another incredibly important list is Obama's summer reading list, you know, which he puts on. Oh out. my God, yes. I mean, that's a huge <laughs> thing to get on. Anyway, we we're, anyway. I just want to yes. add those to the end of our discussion, um, and 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 we want to talk to you about mobility. Yeah, we want to talk about mobility, which is a terrific novel that addresses climate change and capitalism and and the oil industry, among other things. And in some ways, it kind of touches on some of the same dilemmas we're talking about here. Like, what is what does it mean to look good in a capitalist world? To try to look good, and what does it mean to participate in a system that you need and value, and also on some level, even subconsciously, maybe like find suspicious. And of course, your protagonist, Bunny Elizabeth, is kind of in that position. And when we start the novel, she's 15, but eventually she goes into the old oil industry. And if it's doing damage, she would rather, she would kind of rather not know. And I wonder if you can talk about the novel and that character and how you found your way to her in her precarious, her morally precarious position. (laughs) Um, Well, thank you so much for those nice words and that nice reading of the book. Um, Yeah, I think the thing that really interested me about Bunny or or kind of guided how I how I unfolded the novel and constructed it, which I'm one of those people who like cannot outline. I have no idea what's going to happen. Plot is a nightmare for me. It's completely based on vibes and sort of like trudging forward, writing scenes and then trying to figure out how they fit together later. Um, so I just, you know, I had this person very early on and I was just putting her in different situations. And I think the thing I thought about a lot was about sort of political journeys um, or, you know, how we like what it is to grow up, basically. Um, And so the way that Bunny is portrayed when she's 15, um, I have I share, you know, a lot of DNA with Bunny and especially in that era. And so I have a lot of empathy for her, even though I'm kind of clowning her and the things that she cares about and what she's worried about, you know, because that's, you, you don't have, there are many, there are some 15 year olds who just like have a good head on their shoulders and are very self-possessed and have a very good sense of right and wrong and of justice. And then there's the rest of us. (laughs) Um, And so, and I, and I think that's okay that teenagers can be just sort of like shitty and, um, ill-defined and so you know that's how she started but then but then I wanted to look at sort of what happens when she grows up and gets older and how her ideas or her her awareness of the world how it does or does not um, influence her actions what she chooses to sort of hear about and care about and wonder about Um, and I think it it's really an artifact of its time you know I was writing it I started writing it in like 2017 and you know, just after a long period of under realizing that like becoming an adult is not just like getting older and hopefully like being able to buy a house. It's like figuring out what your ideas are, what your um, place is in a system and what your culpability is, what your um, responsibility is for things. And I think, yeah, that was what the last 10 years have been of just sort of like realizing that there were things that other people knew, but you didn't. Um, and why, why was that? And so I was interested in writing a character like that. And that really informs Bunny's, yeah, Bunny as a character. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back.
It's also hard to write characters like that because, I mean, their lack of knowledge or their sometimes incuriousness. Like there's that scene very early on where she feels this flow of patriotism when she hears the national anthem being played at this like, you know, place in Baku, Azerbaijan, you know. Um, And it's, you know, it feels very like she's missing a lot of stuff to the reader, right? I mean, the reader can read above and around that. And yet she's still attractive to you. What did you do to try to create that feeling for the reader? Well, I think, yeah, it was a hard kind of line to walk because I want her, I want the reader to have an awareness that is beyond Bunny's own awareness, mm-hmm. but also, and, and to be able to like kind of judge her. Um, but also if she's just like shitty, you know, if she, like if she's totally not, unlikable. <laughs> yeah, it's not. And some people do just find her unlikable the whole way through. And then that's like, okay, the book's not for you then. That's fine. Uh-huh. But I think the 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 way that I tried to do that was to A, make her, she is observant about a lot of things. Um, she's observant about some things and not observant about others. Or her, or she's not, not able to translate her very keen observations into like broader, um, to like knit them into a broader ideas, I think is an issue. So you know, the fact that she is very observant, she's pretty judgmental, but then she's also kind of a mess. And I was hoping that would be like a little bit disarming. So she does end up in these situations where you're just like, Bunny, what? what? Why are you here? You know, she like drinks too much and like loses her shoe uh, during a one night stand. And she's just like... Well, when the mother, she's... like Stanton Cartwright's mother <laughs> yells at her, I thought, I felt for her. You know, that was, that happened right after that scene with the National Anthem really made me like her in, in, in ways. I thought that was maybe you doing that deliberately. Yeah, I mean, she's had, like, I think thinking about anybody's kind of development as an adolescent as, and just sort of the mortifications that come with that. And yes, the what you meant, you're, you're a great reader. Like, thank you for remembering that, because that's very important to me, the Stanton Cartwright's mother. But uh, yeah, it's just this mortifying experience she has with a boy as she's beginning her, like, kind of sexual life. And, and it's awful. And so, yeah, that's like the kind of thing that I hope readers can be like, even if I don't always agree with what she does, I see her as like a person who has, you know, has feelings and you know is just kind of fumbling her way through the world as as many people are but then yes and then but then like as at a certain point has to like be have more self-awareness one way to make uh characters appealing to readers even if they might disagree even if the reader might disagree with them is to make them readers the characters themselves (laughs) uh which is Bunny is a reader and she thinks and she judges people based on what they read if she thinks about her dad for instance uh, uh, his bookshelf was filled with forbidding books like Al- Alexander Solzhenitsyn that Bunny sometimes tried and failed to read. Um, she also performs the, being the kind of good reader that she thinks other people respect. So I, I wondered if you could talk about that and then maybe read to us a, a passage from the book about her reading habits. Yeah, well, I thought it's, I wanted her to have her dad's books as kind of, a, her dad is like a cold warrior who is part of the public information in the State Department. And so he's coming from a perspective of like, like he would read someone like, you know, he would read like the Gulag Archipelago and that would like really inform his worldview. And then I'm like, okay, well, what is Bunny reading? And one of the things that I thought about a lot is that as I myself, like, my education was so focused on the humanities and that like makes me who I am and I'm so grateful for it. But also when you graduate from college and you're a comparative literature major and you weren't like a very good one, 
you have no skill that is marketable <laughs> um, <laughs> once you are like looking at Craigslist for a job or Indeed or whatever. Um, and so, but it's still those books, I think they do shape her, but then yeah, it's also like the idea of reading. And actually, you know, I had, I for a while I, I kind of elided that and just was sort of like, well, she reads, like, what does she read? And then Emily Bell, my editor, the aforementioned Emily was like, what is she reading? And that was so, I was really glad she asked me that because then I was like, oh yeah, what is like, what is she reading? And then I, that made me, cause I had already known like her dad would read this, but then it's like, yeah, what, what does she read? There's that reference to her reading and rereading Bridget Jones's diary that just made me laugh. Yes. It's like yes. she'd gone through it three times and she just it was her favorite. And that that like when I was a teenager, you know, I read a lot of books. I read very widely and I did read the books on my parents shelves. And thank God they had some really good ones on there. But also I remember when I read Bridget Jones's diary, I was like, oh, my God, this was written for me. Which is crazy because I was like 16 years old. It absolutely was not written for me. But I like I just I, it informed my sensibility so much. And then now when I think about it, it has so many things that are so fucked up, have aged like milk. And I'm just like, this is why. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is why the world is so, is the way it is. Like, because 16 year olds are obsessed with Bridget Jones's diary. But it, you know, it still had some really, it had some really funny stuff in it, but. So there is a passage late in the book where um, Bunny's dad is going to visit and um, she decides to kind of perform a, sh- a certain version of herself. Of course, nothing. I've never done anything like this. Um, but I wonder if you would read this passage for us. Yes. So here in the book, uh, Bunny is, you know, a young professional. She's in her, I think she's in her 30s. And her dad, who has left her mom and sort of not expatriate, he's working. He took a temporary assignment in uh, Tajikistan. He is coming to visit. And so Bunny lives in Houston. You know, she has a little apartment there. Her whole family is convening her siblings who are also very far flung. Her siblings are coming. Her father's coming. Her mother, you know, who's estranged from her father lives nearby. So Bunny's kind of like, oh my God, how am I going to figure out the logistics of my siblings visiting, like visiting my mom, then hosting my dad. So she's kind of fretting. And then she, she, she her, among, with the siblings, um, her brother has a girlfriend who Bunny really sort of is in- intimidated by and looks up to. And so she's really like thinking about how she's going to come off during this visit. The housing arrangements for Ted Sr.'s visit to Houston had been a challenge. With customary thrift, Ted had asked to stay in Bunny's one-bedroom apartment, but then this would leave nowhere for Sophie, John, and small Ted, and they couldn't go back and forth between Beaumont and Houston for logistical but also emotional reasons, for Mary Ellen's sake, Bunny said. As the de facto host and organizer, she told her father and Alicia to get a hotel, and she put John, Sophie, and small Ted in her apartment, small Ted on the couch. She would stay at Francis's townhouse. Bunny had been very anxious about having other people in her space, She had it professionally cleaned before she left, using a service she read about on Yelp. She went around beforehand, appraising how her apartment looked. She had stolen various items from Mary Ellen and from the Beaumont storage unit. She had some beautiful painted Greek pottery and Greek embroidered pillowcases for her throw pillows. She had bought replica vintage travel posters, Côte d'Azur and Cairo and Buenos Aires, and had them framed. She had snowy dish towels and linens from a local homeware shop, 
and a set of good wine glasses from Sur la Table. Her plates and bowls were from Ikea and perfectly fine. On her coffee table was Greek style, which she had taken from Mary Ellen. On her small bookshelf, she had The Joy of Cooking. She had her suite of college books, The Scarlet Letter, Heart of Darkness, Things Fall Apart, The Sun Also Rises, 1984, and several anthologies of American literature, each with its yellow used sticker. She had The Omnivore's Dilemma, Blink, The Collected Stories of F. Scott Fitzgerald, The Stand, A Thousand Acres, Bridget Jones's Diary, The Poisonwood Bible, Lonesome Dove, The Joy Luck Club, and Anna Karenina. She had Ali and Nino, the same copies she had read on the couch in Baku. She had the prize, acknowledged as the Bible for understanding the history of oil, but which she thought was boring. She put out several New Yorkers, which she had bought when she went to Barnes & Noble to browse every so often, to feel connected to a world of culture that her immediate existence did not quite provide. Before the visit, she got several plants and put them on the windowsill. She filled the refrigerator with salami and cheese and olives and sparkling waters and Lone Star beer. Thank you. Um, that was so recognizable and dark and also just made me laugh and bunnies <laughs> bunnies prepared to mortgage herself a little bit and earlier in the book when she's at a temp agency trying to get a job she tells someone and sort of like what you said earlier well i'm an english major so you kind of have to be ready to do anything and she seems to believe that and later still she muses on how simultaneously irrelevant and critical the shaping of narrative was to reality i wonder if you could just say a little bit more about that idea yeah, so I think it's one of the like ironies of Bunny's professional trajectory is that she starts out kind of flailing because she, in in her mind, sort of had no professional training and, you know, kind of entered the job market in like in the recession era when it was very hard to get a job and especially kind of and 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 also knowing that she had been raised to aspire to a certain kind of like white collar existence and professional life, but like no really clear understanding of how she would get there. Um, and of course, you know, she has many privileges to like prop her up, but that still doesn't, you know, unless you some know someone who's going to give you a job, you still like have to find a job and, and, and earn a, earn a living. Um, but then over time, the work that she finds herself doing or finds herself or like engineers herself to do at this oil and gas company is what is called storytelling. Um, and so she does end up using kind of narrative and, um, yeah, and, and stories to like kind of shape the rhetoric around oil and gas, which is something I thought a lot about as I was researching the book, just looking at kind of websites of oil and gas companies now. And, and they're all like clearly have people working for them who are doing this because you would be hard pressed to know that like any of these companies are still doing like fossil fuel extraction from the way their stories are told um, in their public facing materials, which are all about how critical they are to the quote unquote energy transition and how, you know, we should basically thank them because without them, like we wouldn't be able to <laughs> transfer, you know, to decarbonize or like reach net zero, um, even though they are the ones who like got us in this position in the first place. So um, narrative does matter a lot. And and Bunny is able to actually use use that sort of like use text, use language, but in this like very perverse way from the way she was trained. Thank you so much for joining us, Lydia. Um, listeners, don't forget to pick up a copy of Mobility, different, 
definitely one of the, our favorite books of the year. At uh, we'll put it on our list. We're not. We don't make a list. This, the list has one book on it. The person who appeared on the end of the year book list. That's you. Um, pick it up at your local independent bookstore. Thank you so much. And honestly, this being here, that that's you know the list that matters for me. So thank you so much, and have a great rest of your year. Thank you. It's been a pleasure having you with us in Fiction Nonfiction Friends. I just want to add that if you already know that Mobility is a fantastic read, you can also give one as a holiday present to someone you love. And we would love to hear your recommendations for favorite reads of the year on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Happy holidays and year to everyone, and we'll talk to you in 2024. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading!